you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be reading and studying a text this morning. Not the text I would have chosen to study, honestly, uh, going back into a 1 Corinthians study, but we shall see how this works out. But let us hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the, of the temptation of, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give, his, give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife should to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then I also want to read verses 32 through 38. We'll touch on that a little bit this morning. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his own desire under control and has determined this, is, this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, let him do, he, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. We are... Uh, First of all, let me say it's really, really good to be back preaching this morning. I'm very thankful for Jim, Casey, who covered the last couple weeks um, in our final weeks of the psalm, the Psalter, this morning, I mean this summer, and uh, we took a break from 1 Corinthians. We started back in January and felt like it would be good to kind of, um, you know, to, to do something a little different, chop it up, and then come back to our time together in 1 Corinthians this fall. Uh, give you a little layout of what's going to happen with that for this point forward. Number one is we're going to cruise through 1 Corinthians up through around Christmas, then we'll do an Advent series, then we'll go back into 1 Corinthians, hopefully finish up by Easter or before Easter. That's kind of the plan right now as I've got it laid out. Um, you will also, it's, we're going to have some, some little treats here and there. Uh, number one is, uh, of course, Casey and Jim preached their uh, elder candidates in our church. We'll also have another one of our elder candidates come and preach in November, Tom, Brother Tom here, Tom Garrett. And then Gabe, uh, one of our new elders to our church, he's going to preach in December. 
And then, so he's walking in right now. Y'all can get, you know, don't give him applause. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, he doesn't need that, okay? Keep him humble, right? Um, but, uh, and then we also, and I'm excited about this, at the end of this month, there's a, a, a pastor who's become, becoming a close, a good friend. I won't say close friend, but a good friend. Um, had, had several Zoom calls. He works with our Pillar Network. His name is Phil Newton, um, and we're excited to have him come and preach that Sunday morning. He's going to come meet with our elders. He's going to come meet with some pastors in the area, and uh, I think he's going to meet with our elders so we can take some counsel. He's, uh, to, to know a little bit about him, uh, while some people in this room know him very, very well, uh, Ben and Jolie and their family actually used to serve on staff with Phil in Memphis uh, several years ago before they went to the mission field. And, um, and so Phil is now retired from the post there. He planted that church, I think, 30-ish years ago, give or take a few years, and saw that thing plant and grown and, um, and watered and shepherded well. He's just got a wealth of knowledge, wealth of encouragement. He's becoming that for me, and I'm excited to have him come and, and share with us since he's going to be in town. So it's just going to be a little bit of a, a little treat for us, and I think he will serve us well during that time. So kind of mark that. I think that's the 28th is the, the date of that, or 27th. I can't remember which Sunday that is. So anyway, but anyway, let's get back to the text, okay? So we're, I'm excited, man. I'm excited to get back into this sermon series we launched way back in January. And I loved our time in the Psalms. Uh, that also was a nice little excursion for us. But now that we're back into our time in 1 Corinthians, um, I want to take a minute just to kind of refresh our memory about kind of where we have been in our study up to this point to kind of get us all on the same page. Or maybe you're new and you've come over the summer. Um, Paul has been writing this, this letter to... Um, a, some, a dear people he loves. He loves them. That's why we called this series Dear Church, because he loves them. And he's writing a Dear John letter, if you will, to, to this church. And he's helping them, uh, you know, helping them understand and remind them of who they are in, in Christ, because he's been hearing these reports, some concerning reports about things going on in the church. There's divisions in the church we dealt with in the first couple of chapters. We've, there was rampant, uh, cultural, rampant sin, cultural accommodation in the church. We, we saw most recently when we got out of this in May, um, the, the, the temptation towards sexual morality, which will then lead us into our text today. Um, and so he's writing this letter, and, and I just, I have to read it, and we'll probably touch on it a little bit more in a sermon. He's writing this letter with this heart in mind in verse 4 of chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So he's thankful of the work of grace that has been imparted to this people and, and in spite of their messiness, in spite of their, their, their goofiness at times. He, he loves them and he's Thankful for that grace, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom we were, you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is he doing here? He is, before he jumps into all the mess, he's just saying, look, I am thankful for the grace of God. And he says, look, everything that I'm about to instruct you in over the next, you know, several chapters or the length of this letter is, is to ground you back into who you are. Remind you of what grace does in your life. Remind you of the great salvation that you have now received in your Lord Jesus Christ. And that he will give you the gifts you need. He will, he will sustain you until the end and you will be, remain even guiltless until the end because of Christ's atoning work for you. 
And so Paul is writing this letter with these, these purposes in mind, right? He's writing them to remind them of their redeemed status in Jesus and, and, and to keep that central. That's what we do here at Grace. We want to keep Jesus central. I want you, every Sunday we walk in this room, this is a, this is a dear fellowship of the saints. And I can do nothing more and shepherd you no more in our worship and our singing and all the different things we do here can do nothing more important than to help you see Jesus. Nothing else. We can offer principles, we can offer counsel, we can offer instruction as the text gives it to us, but it must always go back to Christ. Because if we, if we lose Christ, then everything just kind of dissolves into moralism. And so he's reminding them of that. He's calling them back to a Christ-centered wisdom and, re- and, and away from a worldly kind of uh, based wisdom. And then he's answering some burning questions as we get into this text today. That's what we see there in that very first, um, that very first uh, verse, like concerning the matters in which you have wrote. So there's been this list of concerns, lists of questions that he now will spend the rest of our time in 1 Corinthians just unpacking. And it just seems appropriate that the first thing he deals with was some questions regarding sex and marriage because he's just got through dealing with the fact that there's, there's kind of a lackadaisical kind of a, um, a approach to uh, sex in the church. And a lot of people have just uh, have accommodated the sexual mores of the culture and saying, well, you know, in grace, all things are forgiven, so let me do as I wish. And so they've got a very low view of the law of God in their life, and they don't understand that when we are saved and the Spirit indwells us, that now empowers us to a new love and a new desire, a new affection for God's law, and not empowered by my own effort, but empowered by the Spirit in my life. And so he's, he's resetting and he's, re, he's regrounding what this is. And so that's the first question he's going to deal with this morning, is how should the Christian view sex in marriage in light of a very sexualized culture in which they live. Now, you and I know how irrelevant that is today. Like, it's like the, you know, like, it's almost like the Bible kind of knew what it was doing. Like, God knew what he was doing when he gave us the Bible, right? And, and, and I just, I can't, I, I can't get over that, right? And so here's the main idea this morning that, that we're going to un- unpack, that in an over-sexualized culture, Christians must regularly re-familiarize ourselves with the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness and the gift of sex in marriage. We're going to cover all three of those things because they're all kind of right here in this text this morning. The gift of marriage, the gift of singleness, and the gift of sex in marriage. Now, I cannot help but see the irony of this, particularly for me this morning. Today is our 18th anniversary. So depending on how well this goes, I may be married or I may be single by the time this is over with, yeah? Um, So let's just hope and pray the Lord provides, right? Um, so there's three observations that I want to see from the text, and then I want to talk about some implications, um, some takeaways from this. The first observation, and if you've got the little guide in front of you, hopefully that'll be helpful for you to kind of follow along with. The first observation we want to take from verses 1 and 2 is the difference between a moralistic, or maybe I would even say an aesthetic view, versus a biblical view of how we fight sin, or how we flee sin. Flee sexual sin specifically. Look what it says there. Now concerning the matter about what you wrote, it is good, notice the quotes there, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation actually, if you want to kind of use it in Paul's response to that, uh, to sexual morality, no, actually each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So 
Here's kind of what's happening right here. Um, there's a concern that's been brought to Paul, questions been brought to Paul um, about the now, uh, because of fear of falling into sexual sin, there is this kind of a over-spiritualized approach that's kind of setting into the church where married couples were even choosing to be celibate. Um, and so that's what you see there in those quotes right there. It is good for a man. He's responding to that idea. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's, that's the idea he's responding to. That's not what he's saying. That's what he's responding to. That's the first concern. And he says, actually, no, because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her, have her own husband. So again, own wife, meaning man of one woman and a woman of one man. Okay, so this is within monogamy, monogamous marriage, right? The way God has designed it. This is not just, you know, uh, anyone you want to. No, you actually, he's not saying sex in general with whomever we wish to have. No, he actually puts it in the context of a covenant marriage here in verse 2. But the concern is that that's being brought to Paul is that in order to protect themselves from the things he's already addressed in chapters 5 and 6, we talked about back in May, Okay, well then, you know what? We're going to be super holy. We're just not even going to have sex. We're just, just, we're just going to get it because, you know, there's always a temptation. We're going to fall into it. And Paul says, actually, no, that's not how this all works. Um, actually, it's good because that actually helps you fight sexual immorality. Amen. Now, so what we have here is we got this kind of antithesis where you have part of the church who's kind of going, well, I'm free in Christ, so let me just do as I wish. Right? chapters 5 and 6, and now we've got the people who are going the other direction to kind of a, um, a legalism, uh, a moralism, a spiritualism, an aestheticism, using all these words that everyone loves hearing, um, and he's saying that's actually not helpful either. It's equally unhelpful. Um, Paul, even though he's been dealing with that ungodly licentiousness that's been into the church and in, in back in verses, uh, back in chapters five and six, he's, he's, and he says, okay, I, I understand why you're maybe would approach it this way. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is not the way his response is no, actually it's good. It's actually good for you to do this. Um, I appreciate, uh, the late Tim Keller's book called, uh, prodigal God. Um, and in it, he does kind of an exegesis of the prodigal son. And in it, he kind of helps, he does, I think, an, a masterful job of setting the table of the good, the, you know, the obedient son and the wayward son. And he basically uses that to show us that there's always these tensions with those who are surrounding the, the, the good father of saying, we either go all obedience, if that's how I relate to him, that's how I'm my favor with God, right? The, the, the obedient son. And then there's the one who goes, oh, it's, it's, it's all licentious. That's the only way it is. I just abandon it and I can do whatever I want to. I can take, I can have contempt for my father's goodness. Give me all my inheritance and go and squander it, right? And I think he does a really good job of saying, actually, what both have forgotten is the radical grace and love of their good father, because when the son comes back home, what does he do? He's saying, okay, well, I'm going to, actually, I think I'm going to appropriate what my other brother's done, and I'm just going to go, go, go work in the slot pens with my, you know, and I'm just going to be a servant. And he's like, no, that's not how I'm going to relate to you. You're not going to relate to me. Like, no, I'm going to throw you with the best robes, the best rings. He is mine. He's come home. And but then at the same time, the, uh, the son, other son gets embittered that he's treated his younger son who squandered all of his inheritance in such a way. He says, I've been here all the time. I've been obedient. I've been home. And he goes, but haven't you always had everything I've given you? 
We tend to do this, don't we, in the Christian life? We tend to God, uh, kind of relate to God on one of these two extremes. Either I've got to show him that I'm worthy of his love, or I just completely take advantage of his love and his grace towards me. And I think he does a great job in this. And I think that's kind of what we see happening here in these, in these texts, right? You've got this kind of, like, one side's taking, it, taking for granted the grace of God, manipulating it, contouring it, misunderstanding the role of the law in their life, and you've got the other side who's going, well, I've got I've to do everything I can to, 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 to flee and to, and to protect myself from sin, so I'm going to accommodate all these extra things, I'm going to add all these extra things into my Christian faith, and what, what are neither of them doing? Neither of them are living and leaning on the grace of God. Neither of them are living and leaning in on the love and power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Neither of them are doing that. And so what Paul is doing here in this first two verses is he's correcting this kind of legalistic or aesthetic asceticism that has become so prevalent in the church. And he's just making it very clear. Actually, husbands and wives should not follow that thinking. It's just not helpful. It will not help me helpful. Um, actually, physical intimacy in marriage actually does help fight against sexual immorality. We are designed by God for sexual intimacy between husbands and wives in the context of marriage. It's, and it's going beyond Scripture to do otherwise. Now, there's a lot we still got to unpack on that, right? Because I can see how someone, and you and I know how someone would manipulate that, right? And we're going to get into that. And so in verses 3 through 5, he shows us a picture of how this works. The, the mutuality that actually exists in marriage between husbands and wives. Let's read verses 3 through 5. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, and, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So now Paul, what he's doing is, is he's outlining now and further understanding what it means for this healthy mutuality to be a partner for us in marriage, right? Don't withhold conjugal rights from one another. Why? Because neither spouse has the rights of their own body. Right? Because of the covenant we've made with one another, there is a sense in which we have given ourselves, and that's what Tom even said, it's not a 50-50 thing. It's a 100-100% thing. It always has been. And it should be clear and unfortunate, that it, but unfortunately it's not, though, and I want to make sure we're clear about this. There's, there's not even a hint of gender domination in this. Okay? And you know what people have done with this, Right? And I can see the husband wagging his finger at his wife right now. See what needs to happen here? And that's, or they'll say, well, no, you know, the wife's just supposed to be ready whenever to go, right? I mean, I just, you've seen this in this culture. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be, I'm trying to be tactful about how I handle this. <laughs> um, but let me just say this. If you hear that kind of quackery and it feels weird to you, it's because it probably is. Okay? If you kind of hear it as this kind of male domination kind of mentality and that's how it's supposed to be, I'm going to invite you to see this a little deeper and see this the way Paul's trying to get at it. He's actually saying, no, 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 no. What he's, he, he's not in any way saying that there's this, this, this kind of obligation. He's saying it's a gift to you to protect one another. 
It's a gift to you, wives to your husbands, and husbands to your wives, that you might protect one another. You are not seeking just the, the, the satisfaction, the physical satisfaction for each other. You're actually seeking the spiritual growth for one another. That's what this is all about. So if you hear that, just be careful. I want to make sure, right? And, 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 if, and if husbands, you've been in the role, and I, know, and I say husbands because it tends to be what I hear, and I'm sure it's happened with wives as well, um, just stop, repent, rest in Christ, stop whining. Um, and I say that as a whiner myself at times. And so, you know, you can hear the conversations kind of happening that kind of butcher this text, right? If you really wanted to serve me, our physical intimacy would be more. If you, uh, you want me to flee sexual immorality or not be tempted by, you know, lust, pornography, affairs, whatever, you, we would have more physical intimacy with each other. Again, whichever side of this it affects. Or, and I've seen this happen, unfortunately, I wouldn't be struggling with this if, we, if this was better in our life. Oh, I have some strong things to say about that. Um, and again, I want to be tactful here. If you're excusing your immoral indulgences and your temptations because you think that's the reason why, or that because, you're, because of whatever's happening in your marriage is the reason why you're in that situation, I want to say to you, one is your hope's not in Christ. Your hopes in, you've dialed up some kind of thing in your head that says, well, this has to happen, and if this doesn't happen, then I don't have a healthy marriage. Um, actually, you don't have Christ in your marriage. That's what you need to re re reground yourself in. And I think it's time to grow up. I really believe that. Holiness, true holiness, true spiritual growth in our life doesn't breed sinful justification for our behaviors and actions. It just doesn't. Paul actually, though, and just in case you're wondering, because that's what he does next, he actually gives us some concessions for reasons why you might have a pause in that in your relationship for a season. And now he doesn't prescribe them. He thinks this is, he puts this in the kind of a liberty category. He does say for a limited time, so I don't, and no one knows how long that is. But there might be wisdom in saying, for a time, devote yourself to prayer. Now, why would you devote yourself to prayer? Well, I would imagine it's because there's probably some issues in your marriage that need to be dealt with. And maybe you're just not dealing with them. And you think by avoiding them, it's just going to get better. And Paul would say, no, actually, maybe it's time for you to pray, get honest with each other, and, and, and really put the things out on the table, the larger concern, that's actually bigger than your physical intimacy in your marriage right? He knows that marriage goes through seasons, right? We all know this. And sometimes seasons are hard, and sometimes marriages need repair, and sometimes marriages need renewal, much to what Tom was praying for earlier. And Christian couples should be upfront with one another about why this is being hindered in that moment in their lives. And they shouldn't shy away from the conversation, but that's what I find most often is that they just don't talk. They just won't really be honest with each other. 
They won't deal with the unresolved division in their marriage. They won't actually deal with the conflict in their marriage. They just think that they can just kind of get a couple few new little principles in their life. If I can just do this better, I can just do that better, then all things are going to get better. But when things don't get better, then all of a sudden they're more embittered and more frustrated with one another or with, the other, with, their, with their spouse. Perhaps there's abuse in the, uh, one party's background or maybe even in the marriage, the present situation of their marriage, and it's just hard and they have to deal with that and no one's dealing with it. Or maybe there's just straight-up sexual sin in the marriage, whether it's hidden or unhidden. Or, uh, yeah, hidden or known, sorry. And if you avoid dealing with it, only anger and bitterness can ensue from that, right? So to be clear here, I want to make sure we're saying what Paul's saying and, and trying to apply this the best way I know how. None of these issues that we may face in our marriages are licensed to completely remove sexual intimacy from our, permanently from our marriages. I want to make sure you hear me say that. And I, don't think, and I think that's exactly what Paul's trying to say. None of that's an excuse to completely like, break that part of your, of your covenant bond with one another. Because, but, but what he's saying is that there are serious issues that need healing in our marriages from time to time. And if repair and if renewal and if holiness are to be brought back to your marriage, it's not going to start in your bed. It's going to start in your repentance with one another. Amen. It's going to start in your honesty with one another. It's going to start with you taking responsibility for the mess that's in your marriage and maybe part, the part that you created in your marriage. That's where it's going to start. It's not going to be on a new rhythm that you figured out for your marriage. No, it's not going to be that at all. And he just, he just puts this kind of aesthetic, this aesthetic um, he just puts this all to rest. He says, look, it's, it, there are times, get to work, heal, and get back to what marriage is supposed to be and be healthy and for the kingdom of God. And then now, in that last observation I want to make before we move into some takeaways, is then now he comes kind of back to, in verses 6 through 9, to dealing with what this kind of attraction to celibacy or abstinence from sex within marriage. And what he's going to say here in these last few verses, and we'll pick into verses 32 through 38 as well, is that true abstinence, true celibacy from sex is a holy calling, he says, to God-centered singleness. That is a calling. And it's a good calling. And I'm going to talk more about why we should value and be very, very uh, uh, loving and inclusive to people who are single, when sometimes that's not always the case. Look at verses 6. Now, as a concession, not a command. So notice what he's saying here. He's given you the design of God for why marriage and sex and marriage is an important part and how that heals your marriage and how it protects your marriage and protects you from sexual sin. But now he's coming back and he's saying, okay, there's a concession though, not a command. I say this, I wish you were all as myself. So he's saying, personally, I think I wish you all were single. But each has his own gift from God. One has one kind and one has another. So he's clearly saying marriage and singleness are both gifts. Yes? Everyone see that? But to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so some might read Paul's words and assume that he believes that celibacy and singleness are superior to marriage. He certainly seems to be convinced for himself personally that that's the right move. 
And again, we go back to verses 32 through 38. Let's just again read it again. And I want you to be free from anxieties. And the, uh, the unmarried man is anxious for the things of the Lord, and so how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious for the worldly things and, ha- and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Um, I'm going to jump on down to, in the same, he repeats the same thing for the wife, single, single women and, and married women. Verse 36, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, that, that's, a, that's a picture of this. Someone's made a commitment, probably a father's made a commitment, if you look at it in the ASV, uh, a commitment for his, his, his daughter to never be married. He wants them to, uh, to make the decision they need to be single all their life. And he says, look, if you've made that decision um, for them, uh, uh, for, a, for a virgin daughter is really what it says there. If his um, passions, and if his passions are strong, okay, it is, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no, no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep, his, to keep her his betrothed. In other words, it's, it's it's really a lot here to unpack, but there's a kind of an kind of a, almost a big engagement, but it's not. And they but they've chosen to not engage in sexual intimacy in this marriage. There's some kind of decision made there between them and perhaps her father or whatever it may be. Um, so then he marry, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage also will do better. So let me just kind of unpack this. He is not saying here that marriage is inferior. Paul's chief concern is that is the devotion to the Lord, and he speaks practically to how marriage impacts our devotion to the Lord versus our how singleness uh, uh, impacts our devotion to the Lord. He recognizes that in the in one uh, uh, one season of life, one singleness, they have the ability to have more unfettered devotion to the Lord. Let me say something clearly here. He is not saying that the single person worships God better than a married person. Okay? He's not saying the single person is more holy than the married person. Clearly not, because most of who Paul would minister to as part of the church were what? Who? Married people, just like it is here today. So he's not throwing marriage under the bus in any way, shape, or form. What he's saying is... Simply put, a simple practical observation. The single person is free to serve the Lord in a way that marriage person, the married person is not. And that's not a bad thing. So Paul is being very clear here to distinguish between what God's commands are and God's designs were, which we read earlier, and his concessions. Both singleness and marriage are gifts to the Christian life. Paul thinks that the real issue at stake here isn't one versus the other, but good order which produces holiness which produces more devotion which what 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 is god calling us to in whatever season it may be and so he reminds his brothers and sisters likely mostly married by the way as i mentioned a girl that his that his celibacy and singleness is a gift and it's been given to him by the power of god And, and 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 if you are not venturing into singleness um, for any other purposes than the power of God driving it, you're leaning into a very dangerous place. You're probably leaning into, again, aestheticism, legalism, moralism, all those kinds of isms. And you're going out there and you're just going to put yourself in the, in, in the face of a lot of assault by the world where marriage could actually really serve you. Now, let me say this. He's not reducing marriage to sex. He's just practically dealing with one question here. All right, 
So don't hear him saying that that's what marriage is all about, because it's really not. It's actually quite a bit more than that. But he's just simply addressing one issue here. He's addressing one issue here. That there, if there's no power of the gospel in that, and there's no gifting for us in those seasons, we should be okay like accepting, receiving, pursuing the gift of marriage for at least that one reason. If you are single here, whether you're feeling called to singleness or maybe the Lord's given you a season of singleness or maybe you're just still waiting for that season of singleness, whatever that may be to end, to, to end in marriage in some way, you should ask right now for the power of God in your life for that season. I mean, God's the one who gives it. And it's not something we can just go and artificially manufacture on our own. If you endeavor to remain single out of a vow to God, as we see here at the end of verses, in verse 36 through 38, and you find that through the process, you're just not strong enough to get through this process because of all the temptations that you have, he says, please put down your silly little vow and know that marriage is a gift to you and there's no sin in it. In other words, get over your pride. Yeah. We sometimes make so many foolish vows to God and they mean nothing in light of the gospel. Nothing. Lay down your pietism. Lay down your, I mean, just lay all that stuff down. Paul wishes that the Christians live out of their liberty in Christ so that, that they've been given to us in Christ so long as that liberty is realized in what? Holiness and worship. Which is going to help you worship God more? And in both of those cases, both lead us to worship of God. Both. Liberty and holiness go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. So here's some takeaways. And we're just going to kind of take them in reverse order. We kind of went you know, sex, marriage, singleness. We're going to go singleness, marriage, sex, okay? Kind of finish it out. First takeaway, the church should appreciate the gift of God-given singleness. I want to say this, and I think this is exactly what Paul is trying to get at here. Sometimes the message is sent, and I think in churches, that's, and, and I don't think it's intentional most of the time, but it's kind of almost viewed as an inferior season of life. And so then people approach, married people approach single people as if, like, what's wrong with you? You don't say it that way. But the way you ask questions and you talk about it, you are saying it that way. And, and I think every, and, and kind of that mentality that every single person needs a spouse. And we can treat people who are single as if they're incomplete, as if they're in a prolonged, as, as if being in a prolonged season of singleness um, is some kind of anathema. And look, certainly, as I've said already, marriage is the normative reality for most people. Most people end up in marriages when it's all said and done and again part of god's good design yes no qualms with that um but he's but it's important that when we you know let me just apply it this way it's one of the reasons why we take and we're very clear about being minimal in our programming here at grace we don't, we will try to be very careful about being very specific and very limited in how we uh, uh, try to do affinity-based programs, right? So you need the program for 
different age groups, then you have different people in different seasons of life, the singles, the college groups, the whatever, right? And again, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we will employ some of those things from time to time for fellowship purposes. It's good to have people in similar situations of life. In fact, I've just sent out a whole survey, if you haven't seen it, to kind of give us an idea of how we can serve you best in the future because as our church is growing, and that's good and, and fine. But one of the things that I think we've tried to do from the very beginning and we continue to try to maintain here is that the emphasis in our church is going to be on what? The whole church. That's why we say, come to a potluck. You need to meet people who are not like you. Come to one large Sunday school on Sunday morning with the adults because you're going to be studying the Word with people across all different categories and seasons of life. And the body of Christ is a multi-generational, it's a multi-contextual, it's a multi-ethnic, it's a multi-lots-of-things kind of people, yes? And to the degree that God builds that diversity in our church, we should be very, very careful not to get slip into these little paths of like, oh, I got to tailor this and I got to tailor that and I got to tailor this and I got to tailor that. No, actually, the starting point should be the whole body of Christ is loving one another. Amen. Right? And I'll go, a little, I'll go a little step further here and just apply this into the modern moment when we're still in such, such a, a struggle in the church with, with those who've struggled with same-sex attraction in their life. And there's so many reasons, and I, you know, I've known people who've left the church because of this reason, and you, know, you wrestle with it, you grieve with it for various ways. And I've just met so many, peop- so, many, so many folks who struggle with this, and they largely agree with the fact that, that yes, they want to they have their life, even though they're struggling with this temptation, they want their life to be conformed to the authority of God's Word, and they understand that, no, God has designed things a certain way. But a lot of times, because the messages that we send to a people is like, you're not, you're, you're, you're not complete if you're not married, well, then what does that leave them? So if we don't have a compelling vision for singleness in the church, what do you think happens for people in that category? And I want to have a compelling vision for singleness here. I really do. I want that because I want them to know, I want folks, if you're in this room, I want you to know that you're as vital to the ministry of this church as anyone else in this church. We, I'll say it again, singleness is a gift, and God powerfully uses it. So the church should appreciate the gift of God-centered singleness. Number two, for our takeaway, marriage. God should, the church should appreciate the gift of God-centered mutuality in marriage. We know how God's ordered, and we know Ephesians 5, and we completely 100% amen to all that, but the fact is here, Paul is saying, actually in marriage, there is a mutual giving of each other to each other in that moment in various ways. And so God has created this beautiful picture of both mutuality between men and women, as well as complementarity, meaning the unity and diversity with men and women. And, and that's primarily lived out in display to marriage and then lived out in the, light, in the way we order our churches, of course. But it seems to be that sometimes what happens in the church is that we tend to kind of blow past one to one side, Right? Mutuality. Everyone's just the same. Everyone's just equal, right? And just all distinctions between men and women are just kind of dissolved. And that's dangerous. We know that. But then we blow past the other side and we overread the other side and we say, well, yeah, all that distinction, that's the only thing that matters or else we're just giving in to the social you know, mores of the world. And I just want to be right here where God kind of gives us in his word, right? I've said this before. There's a day that me and Amanda are not married in heaven, right? And it's going to reset things of where it should be, brother and sister in Christ, yes? That's where it all begins, and that's where it's all going to end. 
So mutuality, both of us given the responsibility of bearing the image of God and being responsible for, the, for, for, for carrying out the creation mandate and all those kinds of things are extremely important, but they're limited. The larger swath of eternity is going to be you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should want both of those being visible and displayed in our marriages and in our life of our church in various ways, in a way that's, that's faithful to what the Scripture gives us, and we seek to try to do that as well as we know how. The good order of a home and the good order of a church that shows the, the unity yet the diversity of the Godhead, right? So we see this in, in the Godhead. We've said this before. There's this ontological reality where all of the, men, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal. They're all same substance. They're all one God. But in an economic kind of way, the relational kind of way between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what? Like, I've, Jesus says, I've come to do the Father's will. So there's a lived reality, but there's a more substantive, like eternal reality. And I think that's exactly what we want to do our, the best we can in terms of what we've seen revealed in Scripture in this regard. When we overrealize one over the other, we end up making either we, we, we blend distinction to this kind of sludge that there's no difference between men and women, or we end up doing this whole, there's one group that's got to be submissive to the other group in a creational kind of way, and that's just not what the Bible says. It's just not. We have to work it all out through the work of the Holy Spirit, but we do that in a, in, a, in a way that the Bible instructs us, not just because we're responding to the ills of the culture. And we tend to do that, don't we? We respond to whatever's most urgent in the culture, and then we overrealize that, we overshoot it, we overpower you know, and it's like we end up going far beyond what the Scriptures say, far beyond what has been revealed in church history and what has been held in church history. Both men and women are created in, in the creation mandate. Both women and men and women are co-heirs and image bearers of Christ. And twisting that, and the, but yet at the same time, there's marriage and there's a relational context that God has given within husbands and wives. There's a relational context between pastors and deacons and, and members that we know and understand that's part of how we then make some of that, that diversity visible. Husbands are to be servant leaders, and wives, yes, they are to submit to their husbands, but they do so by trusting God. God will provide good for them through that whole process. It's not a get out of jail free for a husband. He wags his, wags his finger at his wife and saying, if we just did this, everything would be okay. If you were just better at this or that or the other, that's not the vision of the scriptures at all. And yet I think it's rising in the church. Okay, I've said enough about Last, the church should understand the holy gift of sex as meant for the context of marriage. The church should understand the holy gift of sex that it's meant for the context of marriage. Sadly, statistics tell us that single Christians have abandoned this conviction. And young people, the world, when you go to college or when you get out there, they're going to say, ah, it's no big deal. Just a few months, just a, and, and so what they're doing, they're just having more, you know, sexual intimacy with people that are never going to be their husband or wife, and, and many will engage in, you know, cohabitation before marriage. And I just want to say this, I know that, I know that, I know that that, tem that, that testimony is alive and well in this room, and thanks be to God for His grace, Amen. 
I know, I, yeah. But we must rethink, and I would encourage all of us to rethink the gift of sex and marriage that aids us in holiness and it reaffirms the covenant bond of marriage as one of the primary ways that we ultimately can glorify God, we can pursue holiness with God. Like, that's the gift. Why would Paul give us this instruction today? It's not just so that you would have your best life now, your best marriage now. I go back to what we said at the very beginning of the sermon, verses 4 through 9 of chapter 1. Worth reading again. I thank God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. The reason why our marriages, our sexual selves, our singleness matter is because they matter in the gospel. They matter in the gospel. Live as you already are, who God has made you in Christ. Rest in that. Friends, our hope isn't in singleness or marriage. Our hope is not in um, sexual satisfaction. Our hope is in Christ. And let's avoid the excessive licentiousness that distorts the law of God that, that we use to give us permission to do whatever we want to do. But let's also avoid the heart-crushing legalism that clouds our hope in the gospel. Amen? That's what Paul is seeking to do here in this text. And it's with that idea, what I want to do is I just want us to, as we prepare for the Lord's table, just remind ourselves, you come here, and I would imagine in this room there's, a, any, there's, there's, there's probably sexual brokenness in this room. There's probably marriages that are struggling this morning. There are probably people who are, un, who are just struggling with singleness, and they're not sure that, they, that this is the season that God would, or maybe they just feel like they're just inferior. I just want to say, right now, the table of the Lord will remind you 